Well, we are a few weeks into our study of the longest psalm, Psalm 119. Turn there in your Bibles if you would. If you've been with us, hopefully you've been seeing with us that this psalm is a cornucopia of praise and prayer requests all centered on God's Word, the Bible, Scripture. I thought it'd be good for us to start our study this week by reviewing some things that we've learned, maybe particularly so that we're making sure we're doers of God's word and not hearers only, like James talks about. So if you would, just look down in your Bibles as I reference some things, and you'll sort of glance over the words that I won't necessarily read, but I'll refer us to headings we've had You'll remember from the first couple of stanzas of Psalm 119, if you were with us, that we learned that God has a a direction for our lives. He does prescribe how we should and shouldn't live. And this isn't frustrating or limiting. It is the blessed life. But we're utterly dependent on him to walk in that blessed life. And so we need to ask for his help. And so as we review, we should all be asking ourselves, How am I doing with that? Am I feeling more dependence upon him? Am I expressing that dependence more in prayer, asking for his help? Am I being determined or disciplined to pursue God's word and to pursue God in prayer? Remember that the writer of Psalm 119 is such a a great model for us. We actually get to peer into his prayer journal or sit with him alone in his prayer closet as it were and we need to imitate what he does on another plane of maturity in these first couple of stanzas of psalm 119 remember we should all be asking we should all be aiming for delight in god's word not just dependence not just discipline but delight well that's verses 1 through 16 How about verses 17 to 32, the next couple of stanzas? We learn there that the psalmist, like all Christians, he's a sojourner, he says, verse 19. Meaning he's not at home, he doesn't feel at home, he's traveling through. And hence he's suffering, and he's honest before God about his suffering. So he asks asks for God's help. He supplicates is what we called it that week. He puts his prayer requests in before God. And what does he ask of God? Well, it's all related to the Bible. It's all related to the Word. He doesn't so much pray that the suffering would immediately stop, but that God would give him life according to the Word. He asks God to show him wonderful things out of the Word. Remember, we call that illumination. And so again, we should ask, am I praying? Have I started doing this thing or restarted doing this thing where before I really get reading in my Bible, I ask God to show me wonderful things in his word? Well, then last week we covered verses 33 to 48. We saw that he not only wants to see, not only prays to see, But he prays to see more from the Bible in order to obey more according to the Bible. This guy believes in obedience. 
At least the kind that flows from a covenantal relationship with God. Based on God's mercy and God's love and God's forgiveness. We called it steadfast love. This kind of love from God not only forgives, it also transforms. And this man wants to be transformed. And yet he knows that his obedience to God is sometimes sketchy. He can be prone to wander. And once again, he's honest before God about this. And so he prays that God would keep him from looking at the wrong things and God would incline his heart to God's ways and to God himself. Further, he wants this love for God and this focus on the right stuff to overflow in his speech, for one. Even when he's taunted by enemies, he wants to testify well. He wants to be bold and unashamed, even before kings. Is this what we want? Is this what we're seeking? Is this what we're trying to do more as Psalm 119 is prodding us in that direction? Well, more could be said by way of reminders or by reduplicating our efforts in application. If you've been with us in recent weeks, hopefully you're trying to be a doer of God's word and not a hearer only. And if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, no problem. I just condensed three sermons down to about six minutes. And you say, well, why didn't you just do that? Well, (laughs) I have a job. I have to sort of earn my keep around here. Well, now we're ready for more this week. We come to verse 49 to 64, two stanzas which hold together, I think, with this twofold theme of reminding and remembering. Reminding and remembering. You can spot it for yourself even before we read it. Notice in verse 49, the writer reminds God. Now, we're going to have to talk about that. How does God need reminding? And then notice verse 55, he remembers God's name in the night. And then also in verse 61, he says, I do not forget your law, reminding and remembering. Well, let's read these verses together, verse 49 to 64. Remember your word to your servant in which you've made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me, that I have kept your precepts. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious, be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. 
I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Well, let's consider these verses this morning from four different angles. And I'll just tell you up front so you know where we're headed. The four different angles or themes, we could say, are difficult times, a comforting word, songs at night, and a sufficient God. We'll pull out those themes one at a time since they're scattered and intermingled across these 16 verses. The first, difficult times. Difficult times. Once again, we note that this man finds himself in difficult circumstances. He refers generally to his affliction, verse 50. And then the next verse, verse 51, he refers to the insolent who utterly deride him. The insolent, those who are brazenly and boldly against God and against his people, they mock him. And of course, he's an outsider. Verse 54, he's a a sojourner. Whether it's metaphorical or literal, he's in the house of sojourning, he says. And then if you notice verse 61, so picturesque. The cords of the wicked ensnare me. These are his circumstances. And how does he respond to such difficult times? Well, he commits to follow God's ways no matter the cost and despite all their deriding, if not persecuting. Verse 51, the insolent deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. In verse 61, though the cords of the wicked ensnare him, he does not forget God's law. He won't let it go, no matter the opposition, no matter the cost. You think of the book of Daniel. And the three Hebrew children who refused to bow down before the golden image of King Nebuchadnezzar. That's what he was called in VeggieTales. Can't get that out of my head, unfortunately. Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar. Those three children were thrown into the fiery furnace, but then protected. You think how in the same book... Daniel refused to stop praying. In fact, he kept his windows open. And he was thrown into the lion's den. There are so many examples like this in Scripture. You think of the persecution of the early church in the book of Acts. The beatings and the threats in Acts chapter 4. Again, we say, as they said, you do whatever you want if you're going to hurt us, but we can't help but speak the things which we've heard and seen. You think of the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr after our Lord Jesus in Acts 7. On and on it goes. The church was built because it had to scatter. The gospel spread in the book of Acts, at least in key points, because persecution scattered the people to new locations. As for this man's attitude towards those who are threatening and deriding and persecuting, look at verse 53. We've got to get our hands around this. He says, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Now that can be easily 
misunderstood and misapplied. So notice that he's not mad at people simply who are mean to him. You're mean to me? I'm mad at you. It's not as simple as that. It's not that way at all, in fact. You see, it's not so much about him as it is about God. He makes it explicit. They forsake God's law, his ways. He said elsewhere, they do it insolently, brazenly, boldly. So their offenses against God's people, like himself, that's one thing. But it is of infinitely more importance and gravity when those offenses are also against a holy creator. This holy creator isn't just sad about sin. He's also angry about sin. The Bible doesn't tell us merely about God's compassion, though it does, thankfully. But it also tells us of his wrath, his coming just judgment. Now, we're not going to be the ones who dole out that judgment. Only the Lord. And while even now we are redeemed sinners, and like the psalmist, we are sinners still, like the wicked in many ways. We are redeemed sinners, though. And so, we side with God when it's the world versus God. When it's the world versus God, we side with God. And that's what this man did. Yes, we know that we're sinners too. And yes, we're frustrated and sad and sometimes even a bit angry about our own sin. But we also know the difference between the failures of the forgiven and when the world does double middle fingers to God. And I don't say that carelessly. I thought long and hard about how to communicate human rebellion, brazen wickedness. Some things in this dark, sinful world should take our breath away. Some things should make our blood boil. Like when priests, so-called priests, rape thousands of little boys. And when, quote-unquote, women's health clinics resemble more butcher shops on babies. Or when we hear of a new heartbreaking example of slavery and human trafficking. There is a time to say with a clear conscience out of concern for God first and foremost and then secondly other people. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked. If this never happens to you I mean, either you've got your head in the sand or you've gotten too chummy with the world or you've become too calloused to the ugliness and heinousness of sin. Now, anger against wickedness is not the only available option to us. It's not the only right response. Look over at verse 136. We'll get to it eventually. 
We should note it now. It gives us another side of the coin of thinking through wickedness in this world. Verse 136 says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. That's right. That's true. That's needed. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. But he also overturned the money changers' tables in the temple and called Pharisees brood of vipers, So compassion is needed. Tears are needed. We need more tears as God's people, not less. But maybe not just tears. Not only tears. Imagine living in the days right before the exodus in Egypt as a Jewish man or woman. You know, those days when God began to bring plague after plague to the Egyptians at great cost, culminating with the loss of the firstborn male of every house. Whose side are you on? You see, today, as back then, I'm sure, there is a kind of mealy, wimpy, quote-unquote, compassion that would actually side with the Egyptians and not the God who is justly bringing judgment upon their hard-heartedness. we got to side with God. And yet I say again, and I continue to go back and forth here, as you might be able to tell. Be cautious here. If verse 53 is giving you a newfound freedom, or even excitement to get on Facebook and tell all those nasty sinners how stupid they are, well, you don't get this at all. You should, for now, ignore this verse. You're not mature enough to try to implement it into your Christian life. I mean that. May God give us all a a greater concern for him and his fame and his ways that we might respond with humble compassion And at times, holy indignation because his ways are besmirched and ignored. Secondly, a comforting word. That's what we need about now, right? A comforting word. Verse 49, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Now before we get to the comforting part of this, We need to pick at this thing of reminding God. Reminding God? Is that right? Is that a misprint? Is it right to tell God, hey, remember your word? Does it imply that he's forgotten it? No, of course not. An elephant never forgets, the saying goes. I'm sure that's an exaggeration for elephants, but it's not with God. He doesn't forget. He never has Aha moments. You know, he, he never says, oh yeah, I forgot that I said I would do that. Like we do all the time. So why say to God, remember your word to your servant? Well, the Bible often condescends to us finite human beings to communicate to us an infinite God along some human lines. 
if that makes sense. You think of how Scripture talks about God's arm. Does he have an arm? No, he doesn't have an arm. It's a symbol for his, his power and his victory. His right arm has won the day. You think of how Scripture says we're in his hands or his eyes are on us. He doesn't have hands. He doesn't have eyes. It's condescending to communicate an invisible God in tangible ways that we can understand. And so in Genesis 8, after the flood's been going on for a good long while, we read, God remembered Noah. Not one of those, oh yeah, I forgot about Noah. I've been so busy playing, playing chess with the other two persons of the Trinity. No. Exodus 2 does this as well. When God heard the groanings of his people when they were in slavery in Egypt, he remembered the covenant he made with Abraham. Not, oh yeah, I forgot about that, but, but really it's he recalled it to put it into action. He decided to act would be one interpretive way of understanding Genesis 8 and Exodus 2 where it says God remembered. So the psalmist here is saying, God, I know you remember your word in which we've hoped. Would you please put it into action? Would you please bring it to completion? Bring what to completion? Well, he doesn't say. He calls it a word. He calls it a promise. And we've seen this kind of thing before where he's not explicit. He doesn't say, remember your promise that you gave to Abraham. Or remember that promise that you gave to King David in 2 Samuel 7. He might have had those promises in mind or others. If he's a sojourner in the days of the exile much later on, then he'd be thinking of that word, that promise that came through prophets like Daniel who said, hey, this thing is coming to an end and one day God will bring us back to the land. But whatever the promise he has in mind, it's God's promise, it's his word, and he can take comfort in it. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. And yet apparently he feels some measure of distance between the actual promise God gave in reality. Or the promise that God gave and the fulfillment of it. He feels like he's in a gap. And hence he says to God, remember your word. Bring it, Lord. Do what you said. And we Christians, still today, we still experience that kind of gap. That kind of Distance between promises given and promises fulfilled. The biggest of those promises that we're still waiting on is Jesus' return. Jesus said he would return to us soon. It's been, it's been about 2,000 years since he said that. And so we might wonder, when Lord, when will you come again? When will you make all things new? When will you wipe every tear from our eyes? How long, O oh Lord? Even in heaven, this is apparently going on. The martyrs, already dead, in heaven, before the throne, in Revelation 6, are portrayed to be asking God, how long until you avenge our blood? 
And Jesus says, not yet. More of your kind are still to come. Likewise, uh, Jesus said that the gospel would spread through the whole world. We already know the, the end in heaven. That there'll be a, a multitude which no man can number from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. And the gospel has gone far in spreading throughout the world, but it hasn't gone that far. It hasn't gone all the way. And sometimes it seems like it's moving along pretty slowly. I mean, you might send some missionaries to North Africa, and they could be there for a decade without any conversions. Are we okay with that? Well, we should be. There aren't Christians there. The wind blows where it wishes. You don't see where it's going, only where it's been. It's God who gives the increase. This stuff is like farming, remember? You plant your seed and you wait. That's what farmers do. And they pray. And that's what we do. It can feel like we're in this gap between God saying he would spread the gospel all through the world. And we would love for revival to happen in Albuquerque and in faraway lands. But it's like farming, so we wait and we pray. Some promises are probably being fulfilled before our very eyes and we don't feel like they are. I mean, Jesus said he would give us comfort, more than enough comfort. He said that we would have joy, abundant joy flowing out of us like a fire hydrant gushing. And sometimes we don't feel very comforted at all. At times we feel like we have every bit of emotion going on except joy. Jesus promised he would unite his people, and sometimes the church feels more splintered and fractured than ever. That's okay. We come from a long line of people who walk by faith, not by sight. We come from a long line of people who know how to say humbly, but honestly, how long, O Lord? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We come from a long line of saints who courageously ask God, remember your promise, bring it to pass, do what you said. In fact, we not only come from a long line of people who know that gap between what God has said and what he has yet still to do, but take note of the fact that we here today in this place, in the new covenant era, and in the 21st century, we are extremely privileged to live in a time when so many dominoes have already fallen. So many things have come to pass. So many promises that were long ago waited upon. Well, now they've, they've come. They're behind us. Jesus has come. Before Jesus came, there was almost like a, a bottleneck of unfulfilled promises or half fulfilled promises. The promises just kept growing, but the fulfillment didn't fully come until Christ came. And now Christ has come, and we live in a privileged time in God's redemptive plan. We're not in Exodus. We're not in the, the exile. We're not awaiting a, a, a physical move geographically back to a certain place on the map we're not waiting for a new temple to be built 
We're not waiting for a red heifer. Now, all that stuff's done now that Jesus has come. He's the true sacrifice. He's made us his temple. We're not wondering anymore how God will be just and the justifier of the ungodly. Now, let me explain that if you don't know about that. That's in Romans 3. Romans 3 explains that Jesus in his coming, and specifically his death and resurrection, means that we now understand how God could be just, righteous, holy, and the justifier of the ungodly. How does he declare him righteous? How does he remove sin? In the case of King David, he sinned greatly at times. And God forgave him. There were consequences, but God forgave. And you wonder how. Is this the kind of bad judge that just lets bad people go? He just sweeps it under the cosmic rug? He, he just eats it somehow? Where does it go? Where's the guilt? How is God fair and just if sinners go free? And then Jesus comes. And he dies in our place. He makes the payment. Because he's not just human, but God. It's, a, it's an infinite payment. He can pay for more than one sin, one soul's sins. And now that he's crucified and risen, he offers forgiveness to any who will simply believe what he says is true and put all their hope in it. So you got to give up some other thing you were doing. You know, Buddhism, trying to earn your way there, just trying to be a pretty good guy or gal. You've got to give that up. You've got to let that go and cling solely to Jesus. But here's the good news. That's all you've got to do. You've just got to cling to Jesus. You've just got to put all your hope in him. And then forgiven. Remember I said he, he transforms too. So this is a comforting word, isn't it? Let's remind ourselves of it. Like verse 56 says, remind yourself of his name and his works, or do not forget. One way we do that is by singing. Thirdly, and the last two will go much more quickly. Songs at night. Songs at night. Verse 54, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night. And then verse 62 in the next stanza. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Now it's not clear whether this is a case of insomnia. Perhaps because he continues to live in that gap between promises made and promises fulfilled. And it's not clear, rather, instead, whether this is just his routine, his discipline. This is when the kids are sleeping and it's quiet. And he burns the midnight oil down on his knees in prayer. Phillips, Craig, and Dean reference, if anyone's following along here. Or perhaps part of the, the equation is that nighttime is his natural inclination. He's a night owl. I'm not like that, but some people are. They come alive in the wee hours of the night. Maybe this man was like that. 
Now, we should be careful not to make too much of the time of the day that we get alone with God. The fact is that there are some Bible verses which speak of meeting with God in the morning or at dawn. There are some verses which refer to praising God at night or in the night watches. And then there are a whole lot of verses that talk about meeting with God all the time. Or seven times a day I will praise you, which doesn't mean literally seven times. It's a number of completeness. It means all day I praise you. That's Deuteronomy 6, by the way, right? These words should be on your lips when you go out and when you come in, when you rise up and when you lie down. So one thing we can say is that that we shouldn't just think of Bible and prayer and time with God as only a slot, whether morning, noon, or night. But there probably should be a routine slot where we can really make the time and take the time for prayer and for meditation and study and for worship. And if you're a night owl and 11.30 is that time for your main spot for Bible and prayer, then great. I get it. You're more alert. It's quiet. You don't have a thing to get to except bed, which you probably should. But I know when you're a night owl, you don't mind just pushing that limit. Or if you're a morning person, well, you just got to carve out time for this. You need a spot that's routine where you're going you're to take time for God. You're going to take time to talk with him, to be with him, and to learn from him. And then there's that possibility that this man just can't sleep. What do you do when you can't sleep? What do you do? Toss and turn, get on your phone, turn on the TV, go eat something. I've done all those. And I know we're all unique, and sometimes the goal is just to get back to sleep as quickly as possible because we need our sleep, and it's a busy day the next day. So, yes, use whatever means you need to to get back to sleep if that's what you got to do. But let's not miss the opportunity that insomnia or occasional sleeplessness may provide for Bible and prayer. Often we can't sleep because we're stressed out, because we're overwhelmed. Because we're burdened by something. Well, that's a perfect time to talk to God about it. To cast your burdens on him. To realign your thinking to his word. To remind yourself of his promises. Or even to sing his praises. I've been purposely general thus far about time with God and Bible and prayer. But, of course, you notice that Verse 54 and verse 62 are more specific. Your statutes have been my song. At midnight, I rise to praise you. So for this man, it isn't just about Bible reading or praying through prayer requests. He's praising God. He's singing about God and to God at night. You say, yeah, that's not me. I can't sing. And I would say in response, well, you forgot. It's midnight. No one's listening. So go ahead and sing. 
Besides, most of our homes are not so small that there isn't some corner of the house that we could get to day or night and not terribly disturb people with our private singing. I know this is blowing your mind. Some of you people are just thinking, you're wanting me to sing alone, not in my car and not in the shower. And I am. I am. This is what this is talking about here. We're to sing. We're commanded to sing. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise, Psalm 66. In the New Testament, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, says that the church should be singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in their hearts to God. Singing, God designed it to be powerful. It's supposed to have, and it does, emotive power. It's, it's meant to move, not just in form, but it does inform. John Piper says, the realities of God and Christ and creation and salvation and heaven and hell are simply too great for mere speaking. They must be sung. Singing is what we'll do in heaven. You don't like it now? You better get practicing. Choir time's coming with angels and saints and God himself. God himself sings. Now, there has to be a connection, I think, between singing with family or by ourselves and singing like we do on Sunday morning with the church. It seems to me like one serves the other. It feeds the other. On and on they go. They round and round. They energize each other. So we'll never be the kind of people that want to sing alone with God if we aren't the kind of people who understand and love singing together as a church. You might not know it, but our Desert Springs Church website has a separate blog just for music. So every week, Drew posts a Sunday recap and it lists the scriptures that were read and the songs that were sung. And then next to each song, there are three different links. One for the lyrics, one for the chord chart, if you know how to play guitar, and an MP3 recording of the song, whether it's by our church or someone else. This is meant to serve families singing together and even individuals singing together. So if you want to find that, just go to blog at the top of our website, and then down the side, there'll be some distinct blogs you can click. Click music blog. You can even subscribe to it, and it just comes to your inbox every week. Well, much more could be said about singing in the night, including just practical advice. I'd encourage you in your community groups to just share ideas of how you use singing in your family, in your home, in your car, in the shower, in your time with the Lord. Fourthly, there's a sufficient God to end all this for us. A sufficient God. And so much could be said about the God revealed in all of our verses of Psalm 119 this week. I'll only point out two things about God. They're bracketed in the second stanza, verse 57 and verse 64. 
Let's take each of those one at a time. Verse 57 says, the Lord is my portion. He's my portion. Now that word portion, when I hear portion, I think of food size. But here in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, portion most often refers to a portion of land, that being from the promised land. So if you read Joshua, you keep seeing inheritance and portion of the land because that's what's coming once they enter the land. And so you might remember that the 12 tribes of Israel all got a portion of the promised land, except one, the Levites. The tribe of Levi didn't get any land, no portion for them. Why? It says in Numbers 18, you'll have no inheritance in the land, no portion. Because I, the Lord says, I am your portion and your inheritance. The Lord was their portion. And you might think, oh, well, that's a, that's a bad Christmas present. That's like saying, you know what I got you for Christmas this year, honey? Me. <laughs> yeah, but that's me. And that's way different than the Lord. The Lord can say, you know what your inheritance is? It's not dirt. It's me, and that's enough. The Levites were to be a constant reminder to all of God's people that the promised land was not the end-all and be-all. The land had its place for a time, sure, but God never was just a mere land-giver. So this psalmist, whether he was from the tribe of Levi or not, he knew well that principle behind the landless Levites. The Lord is his portion. The Lord is his inheritance. He is all you need. As we sang earlier, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. And then verse 64, a sufficient God is shown like this. The earth O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. This thing just got global, didn't it? I think this means that there is no place on earth where God's covenantal love and faithfulness does not reach. These promises, though set in a context that was very much oriented towards the place, the land, here now, we get hints of what's to come later on. Uh, his steadfast love isn't just in the land. It's everywhere. It's going everywhere. The Lord is my portion, whether I have a plot of land or not. Remember that phrase from last week, steadfast love, covenant love. That rich Hebrew word that means so, so much. One way of defining it and filling it out would just be to quote from Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. In difficult times, we need a comforting word. That comforting word is a promise that provides hope. Many promises are done behind us, fulfilled, and all the rewards are ours. But the work isn't done. And so we press on. Promises are still to be fulfilled like Jesus' coming again and him saving a multitude which no man can number from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. So let's plant, let's seed, let's water, let's wait, let's pray. Let's keep praying and asking him to bring to pass just what he said he would. He will. Just look back. He just keeps doing it. You're worried about a couple thousand year gap or something? No, he's been active all this time. And he will bring all of his promises to pass. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for how you've revealed yourself in covenants, in history, in precepts, in rules, in attributes, and in promises still to come. So, Lord, we humbly pray and boldly pray, do what you said, Lord. Remember what you said. Bring it to pass. Help us while we wait. Make us busy while we wait. And may we often look to your word as we walk by faith in this pilgrim time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.